0: Thank you. you. may be seated. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter 4. This morning we end our series in the Gospel of Mark, at least for, for now, as we turn our thoughts to Advent and the Christmas season. Mark chapter 4. Follow me, please, as I begin reading at verse 35. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, and of course this is Jesus speaking, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you, Father, that it is so available to us in this country. We're thankful, Father, that we have it to read in our homes and that we can preach it in our churches according to the dictates of our conscience as you train our conscience We thank you, Father, for the freedom that is ours to come this morning and to worship, to praise your name, and to hear you speak in your word. And my sincere prayer and the prayers of those who are with me this morning would be that you would speak to us, that we would listen, that we would hear you speak, and that we would be more like Jesus because the water of the word has washed over us. Father, in these apostles we see ourselves at times, We also see the remedy for our fears. We see, Father, that your Son, Jesus, is truly man and truly God, that he is at your right hand, that he is eager to have us come to him in our times of great need, and that he provides for us. Comfort us where we need to be comforted. Father, we pray that you would um, encourage us where we need encouragement. We pray that you would rouse us to action where we need that, and we would pray, Father, that your Spirit would be at work, and that for those who are present this morning who don't know Jesus, that they would see him lifted up, that they would respond to the gospel, that they would know the absolute joy of having sins forgiven and the joy of being in fellowship with you now and forever. We pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Most of us, probably all of us, have lived in situations where we wondered if God really loved us, if he really cared for us. We have believed the gospel. We agreed with what the gospel teaches, that all of us have sinned, that we have all come short of God's standard, that we have lived lives for ourselves and not lived lives to please him. We agreed with all of that. We agreed that we had offended our God by not obeying him In the things that he commands. We came to believe that by our own efforts we could not undo our sin. We could no more undo our sin than we could put toothpaste back into the tube when it's come out. We came to believe that our own efforts to undo things and to please God would totally fail. There was no way that we could remedy our sin problem. We understood that people who have disobeyed God cannot have fellowship with him, that he is a holy God, he calls his people to be holy, and that unholy cannot be an intimate fellowship with holy. We understood that our offenses had eradicated the intimacy that God desired to have with us, that we could not have fellowship. We believe that Jesus, the sinless God-man, had suffered eternal punishment for our sin, And we believed that if we trusted in his sacrifice for forgiveness and made a commitment to follow him, to obey him, that we would be forgiven, that we would be adopted into his family, that we would be sons and daughters of the King of kings and Lord of lords. With sorrow for our sins, in prayer we confessed our sinfulness. We asked God to forgive us based on our faith in Jesus' sacrifice, and we told God that we wanted to follow Jesus. We wanted to live like He lived. The seed of the gospel fell in good soil in our hearts, soil that God had prepared, and our lives were changed. We experienced the joy of knowing forgiveness. We had new desires. Our hearts were filled with a love for Christ, and we had an intense desire to know Him better. But at some point, after receiving Christ as Savior and Lord, we found ourselves in the midst of a horrible life situation. It might have taken a few days after we came to faith, or months, or maybe for some as much as years, but there came a time when our world was shaken. The tsunami struck us. The phone rang, and the doctor or someone from the doctor's office who had made the call told us, The news is not good. The results were not good. Or we wanted a baby more than anything else in the world, and we had finally conceived, and we went for a checkup, and there was no heartbeat found on this occasion. Our supervisor called us into his or her office and said that in the downsizing, our job had been eliminated. There was no space for us anymore in the organization or a child of ours made an incredibly bad choice. And we knew that the effects of that choice would live with them and with us for a very long time, and that that choice would cause a mountain of pain and complication for them and those around. Or maybe a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a spouse told us that the relationship wasn't working for them, that they weren't happy in the way things were going, and that they wanted out of the relationship or the marriage. You were not living at that time in any unknown, or any known, unconfessed sin. The storm that had come after you examined your heart didn't seem to be at all the correction that God brings when we fail to listen to His Word and confess our sins and live in holiness. It wasn't the discipline that follows the gentle discipline when we disobey. You were following Jesus but you were in the midst of a severe storm, and you wondered if God really cared, if he still loved you, if he were protecting you and sustaining you. In our text, Mark 4, verses 35 through 41, Jesus' apostles have these questions. They wonder about these things. I think the gospel writers, in recording this incident in the life of Jesus for us, want us to see, really want us to see, that Jesus is truly human. Mark tells us in 435 that the storm in which Jesus and the apostles found themselves took place on a day after Jesus had been teaching both large crowds and teaching his disciples privately. The words of 435, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go, connect... This event, the storm, and Jesus' response to it and all that he does, to all of that teaching that went on that you have studied, we have studied together in chapter 4. Now when you go back to chapter 4, verse 1, you see that Mark tells us that the crowd that was listening to Jesus was so very large that Jesus could only teach them by getting into a boat and pushing that boat off from shore uh, a little bit. The crowd was so great that if Jesus had not done that, very few would have seen him, very few would have heard him. We have seen what takes place in crowds that are around notable people, the pushing and the shoving and all of that. And we can imagine Jesus in the midst of that kind of mess. He wouldn't even be able to articulate clearly his thoughts to connect them all as the crowd pushed upon him because this is the Jesus that has exercised demons and has healed, and teaches like no other. Now I want to tell you, preaching and teaching are exhausting. The reason most ministers take Mondays off when churches let them pretty much take any day they want is because most pastors who have worked on the Lord's Day are absolutely drained mentally and, mentally and emotionally by Monday morning. Paul affirms the rigors that are involved in teaching and preaching in 1 Timothy 5, verse 17. There he writes, the elders who direct the affairs of the church, well, are worthy of double honor. And that's talking there about financial compensation, actually, in context. He says, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. And the word that's used for work there is hard labor intense labor, labor that's physical and mental and strenuous. Preparation for teaching takes a considerable amount of time. The person who's teaching has to compare what they're about to say with all of the things that are said in Scripture if they're to speak truth. We compare Scripture with Scripture. There is the stress that comes from probing the hearer's souls and confronting him or her with their sin. That's a hard thing to do. Every speaker who does that, every preacher who's worth his salt who does that is aware that there will be people in any group that resist what he's preaching, and they know in time that some of that resistance gets pretty vocal. Now, if they're a true mouthpiece of God, they never water down the message because they know these things, but the dissonance that they know that is created as they proclaim the Word of God is wearing on them. Mark tells us in 3.22 that in Jesus' audience, there were people who were seeking to link him in some way to Beelzebub, to Satan. They wanted to say that his teaching was from none other than Satan. He knew that. He knew those people were in the crowd, obviously. Additionally, no matter how much a pastor loves people, no matter how much of the extrovert um, he may be, No matter how much he loves the shepherd's role, he finds that the cumulative impact of dealing with people's sins, with their illnesses, with death, with emotional pain, with poverty, with unbelief, the whole array of human problems, needs, and questions that are shared with him on a regular basis, even though he wants that to happen, is emotionally and spiritually draining. If all of this were not enough, every faithful minister of the gospel knows that as he prepares to teach, that Satan is present to discourage what he is preparing to do. And then Tom showed us a couple weeks ago in Mark chapter 4, verses 4 and in 4.15, that Satan is present when the word of God is preached. Do you remember that parable? Some of the seed falls along the wayside and the birds of the air take the seed well, Tom told us and showed us in the paragra- a parable as Jesus does that those birds represent Satan. And the text tells us in 15 that whenever the word of God is proclaimed, when the gospel is proclaimed, that Satan is there to quickly steal away the seed. Now, Jesus had healed. He had exercised demons. He had taught in the face of human and satanic opposition. And he is physically he is emotionally he is spiritually drained we read that day when evening came he said to his disciples let us go to the other side in matthew 8:18 8, you see very clearly what was driving that desire to get out on the lake that night in 8:18 8, we are told that the crowd just doesn't leave him so that he can rest and recharge his batteries we read there that when Jesus saw that crowd around him as evening came, then he gave the orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Again, Mark 4, leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. Just as he was in the boat. In Mark four thirty-eight, we're told that Jesus went to sleep in the stern of the boat. Of those who are in the boat, it seems like he alone is the one who sleeps. Mark and Matthew and Luke all include this event, as I said, this event in the life of Jesus to show their readers that Jesus is fully human. Now, we have no record in Scripture that angels ever get tired of doing what they do, their ministry. We know from Scripture that God never gets tired from ordering and running his universe. In Psalm 121, 2 through 4, we read, The Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, will neither slumber nor sleep. But Jesus is absolutely drained of energy. Jesus cannot go on without physical and psychic restoration that sleep brings to real men and real women. And so is that boat quietly knifes its way through the calm waters of the lake, the Sea of Galilee, gentle wind in its sails, the second person of the Trinity, who in the womb of the Virgin took to his divine person a real human body and soul, sleeps the same kind of sleep that you have slept when you have been absolutely drained, absolutely fried. Jesus' full humanity is absolutely essential to your forgiveness by a holy and just God. When Jesus suffers the hell that you deserve at Calvary, when he suffers for your sins, he does it in the only way that ever can be acceptable to God the Father. Jesus dies and suffers the wrath of God in your place as a sinless human being. He suffers and dies as your perfect substitute. The Son of God became a man to do that. This was his mission. 2 Corinthians 5.21 describes so wonderfully what was going on there at the cross. There the Apostle Paul writes that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The sinless one gets our sin imputed to him and dies for it, and we, as we believe, get His holiness imputed to us. Same teaching in First Peter chapter three, verse 13, uh, chapter three, verse 18. "Christ died for sins once for all. the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Now, Jesus' full humanity is not only important for, absolutely important and essential for our forgiveness, but it's essential to our comfort in this life. The one who died in our place was raised from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And in that beautiful passage of Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, the writer tells us that that knowledge That the one who came in human flesh is at the right hand of God should be a continual encouragement to us. We have, you have in heaven, one who is fully human and also fully God. In his complete humanity, the God-man experienced not only exhaustion, but hunger and thirst and rejection and humiliation, physical and emotional pain, And every type of temptation that we experience. He has experienced as a human everything we experience except sin. He had no sin. He knows your joy. He knows your sorrow. And he empathizes with you. Different than sympathy and empathy, there's one who can actually feel what you're feeling because they have gone through it. As exalted Lord of heaven and earth, He says to you in Hebrews 4, come to me with confidence, come asking for help and strength. I know what you need, and I am ever so eager to provide it. Jesus was fully human. Jesus' Jesus' disciples are truly terrified. The topography of the Sea of Galilee you probably heard makes for very rapid changes in weather. And we won't go into that this morning, what causes that. But it's very common for severe storms to come down upon the lake. The language used in Matthew, Mark, and Luke describe what happens uh, as Jesus and his apostles cross the lake, and it indicates that there was a storm of colossal proportions if you look at the words that were chosen to describe the boat is filling with water as waves crash over the side of the boat. And even the fishermen in the boat, the professionals, are part of the group, no doubt, that cry out, Master, Master, we're going to drown, Luke eight twenty four. That's their professional opinion. And they knew the lake well. They knew storms well. In verse 38 of our text, the disciples wake the sleeping Jesus and ask, Teacher, don't you care if we perish? Now, the question is, what do they mean by the we? Do they mean all of us, including you, are going to perish? Or we're going to perish if you don't perform a miracle here for us? Did they think Jesus would drown? Or did they believe he could perform a miracle and save himself and them? From Jesus' comment in verse 40 about their lack of faith, and from the shock they experience in verse 41, it's my strong belief that these men at this point are protesting the fact that Jesus is sleeping and that he's not up worrying with them and helping them possibly to bail out the boat. I think they're dismayed that he is not helping them as the boat sinks. J.C. Ryle was the bishop of uh, Liverpool, an Anglican bishop. Um, I think anything that he writes, you would profit by if you read it. He died in 1900, but a real evangelical and just makes so much sense in the things that he writes. He says this, sight, sense, and feelings make men and women very poor theologians. These men see... And experience the storm. They feel they are going to die and they forget so much of what Jesus has taught them and shown them about himself. I mean, think about it. They are safe with him. He has told them that he's going to make them fishers of men. They haven't been released yet to do their ministry. They're not going to die on this lake. And Jesus has told them he's Messiah and that he has to go to a cross and die and shed blood. He's not going to go down with the ship. He cannot die in the storm. He has to carry out all the Old Testament prophecies from Moses through Isaiah, all of the others that tell of Messiah's violent death as a sacrifice for sin. Now, I read this stuff in Scripture, and here's what I usually take away from it. I get to the point where I pray, God, I'm thankful I'm not like these people in Scripture whose faith was so shaky. You can laugh now. I mean, I shouldn't be up here if I actually believe that. But, you know, that's, we're, we're like this, aren't we? I mean, don't you panic sometimes in life's storms? Um, do you always find that your theology keeps you at peace when the waves come crashing down on you? Do you find that you rest in the assurance that the master of heaven and earth and sea has everything under control for your good all the time? Do you stay convinced that nothing can happen to you unless it comes through the hands of a loving Heavenly Father who allows that thing to happen and to happen for your good? Do you really find that you're confident in every storm the Lord allows you to experience? Do you really believe in everyone that He has a plan and that what He has for you is beneficial? for you or for the others around you? Well, the truth is that often I am like these men and probably you are too. When we see and sense and feel the storm, we become very poor theologians. Our faith in the Lord and his promises tend to get washed overboard when we're in the midst of the storm. Now, think about who it is that gets them into this mess, all right? Did you think about that? I mean, Jesus is the one that asks them to take him out on the sea. They're obedient to the Lord. They respond immediately to what he wants. We all get in the boat, and we go. They're perfectly obedient to the Lord, but that hasn't spared them the trials and tribulations that come to them in this storm. I want to tell you, if you've been around here for a while, you're not going to find anybody here that stands in this pulpit, nor will you find anywhere in Scripture anything that teaches that if you become a Christian, if you believe Jesus today, as we we hope you do or will, that you will not suffer uh, in this life. That's just not what Scripture teaches. Terrified disciples, truly terrified, Jesus is truly God, verses 39 through 41. God is sovereign, Scripture tells us, over every storm. Psalm 135, verses 6 through 7, The Lord, Yahweh, does whatever he pleases in the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and all their depths. Psalm 89, 9, You, O Lord, rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. Now Mark and the other gospel writers want us to know that by this event it proves that Jesus was truly human, yet he was also truly human without sin. He is exhausted, he requires sleep, but his faith in his Father doesn't fail him. He's experiencing perfect peace down there in the ship in the midst of the storm. He sleeps like a baby. He has perfect confidence in his father's protection. He knows nothing can harm him until his work is done. He knows that the scripture teaches that Messiah must shed blood at the hands of wicked men. That Messiah will not die here on this lake. Four thirty-eight through thirty-nine. The disciples, in their terror, wake up Jesus. In their terror, they probably shout this, which is a criticism of Jesus, teacher. Don't you care if we drown? Mark tells us Jesus got up. He rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Strong language. Mark records that immediately at Jesus' words, look what it says, the wind died down and it was completely calm. Jesus is truly man. Say it again, don't forget it. He has a full human nature like yours. He has a human body like yours, a human soul. But his complete human nature, formed in the womb of the Virgin Mary, is forever joined to his divine nature. He is truly man, as we say in the confession, but he is truly God. John 1.14, some of the most matchless words in language. The Word, the second person of the Trinity, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Jesus Christ is Lord of heaven and earth. Colossians 1:15 and 16 by him all things were created; in him all things hold together. All power in heaven and on earth is his. The wind and the waves Obey his voice. Peace. Be still. Christ's divine nature, absolutely essential to your salvation and mine. It makes his human sacrifice effective, not just for one other person, not a sinless person substituting for one sinful person. It makes his sacrifice effective for every human who accepts Jesus by faith. Christ's divine nature keeps his human nature from being crushed under the load of sin that was placed upon him, the sins of all who would ever believe in him, and his divine nature makes his sacrifice effective for the millions upon millions who have believed and who will still believe until Jesus comes back. The weary God-man slept through this fierce storm of seismic proportions, Awakened, He calms the wind and the waves. The apostles cry, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Jesus cared. He always cares for his own. That doesn't mean that harm will never come into the life of Jesus' disciples. What it means is this. In every storm, we have a God that we can go to in prayer. We can come and ask for his help. And he will remove us from the storm if it's in our best interest, in the interest, the best interest of his kingdom. The storms of life are important for our training in faith, and you see that here. As a result of this storm, the disciples in this experience learn things about Jesus that they had not learned previously. They begin to learn with full assurance that their master really is God incarnate. In the storm, the apostles are afraid they will die, but notice this. After the storm, they are afraid of Jesus. Look at 441. They were terrified after he stops the storm and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They have been They had been terrified by the power of the storm. Now they're terrified and awed by the presence of omnipotent power, almighty power in Jesus. They have watched Jesus cast out demons. They have watched him heal the sick. But it's likely that they knew other godly humans who had done exorcisms and even been used by God in healings. They never knew anyone. Who could control nature. They learned that lesson here in the midst of the trials and the terror on the lake. Jesus is far more than they had previously imagined. Jesus, they are coming to learn, is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is God. Do you see the part that storms play in the lives of we who are Christ's followers? In the storm, These men got to know Jesus in ways that they did not know him previously. Their faith in his absolute power to answer their prayers, to meet their needs, is strengthened tremendously because they went through this great trial. Now, from this time on, just think of these apostles. Whenever dangers raised its head for them, these men would face those dangers with confidence, knowing that Jesus cared about them, And that he had the power to respond to their needs. Their faith grown in the storm is going to do them in good stead in subsequent storms. They're going to go away from this with an inner peace and strength that they did not have absent the trials and tribulations. Now they're going to need more lessons to fully develop their faith. But by the time Jesus is about to return to heaven after his resurrection... And he says to them in Matthew 28:18, "All power in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, and I surely am with you always. They will remember, and they will fearlessly take the gospel to a hostile world, believing the promise and with the faith strengthened here on the lake and in other trials and tribulations. If you have received Jesus as your Savior and Lord, Jesus is training you in faith, in life, in the way that he trained these disciples. Storms will come. They are not random. They have purpose. They drive us to Jesus. We get to know him more fully. The God-man works the storms out for our advantage, Romans 8, 28 and following. In them he is growing you in faith and making you into the likeness of his son Jesus who could sleep in the storm. And you can have peace in the storms of life. He's with you in them. You can go to him for help. He knows how it feels to go through them because of Advent. Jesus took your humanity. It's forever a part of who he is. He invites you to come to him boldly that you can receive need in your storms. This section ends with a question that focuses attention uh, on Jesus in a way that calls everybody who would ever read it after Mark wrote it to ask uh, ask the question of themselves. Who is this? How do you answer the question? If you answer it, I believe that Jesus is the Son of the living God. That he's the sinless one who died and rose again to take away my sins, then Scripture says that you're a child of God. You're a part of the kingdom of God. If you really believe what you say in your heart, you're part of his kingdom. And you have fellowship with God in the here and now, you're going to have fellowship with him and all who love him forever and ever. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If you cannot say those things, you need to spend time with the Jesus of the gospel here. If you have seen Jesus this morning and you want to receive the forgiveness that's offered at Calvary, let's pray, and you pray with me that Christ would come in and take away your sins. Tell him you want to follow him. You want to trust him. You do trust him as Savior, Lord. Father, thank you for... The attention of your people to your holy word this morning. Father, I pray that we would remember the messages of Mark, that we would remember this particular message. Father, life is filled with trials and tribulations. I've said so many times that even when life is very good, as people would judge it being good, it can be incredibly hard. Father, everybody has their pain, their struggles. Help us to remember that you are with us through them, that you love us, that you know what our pain is like because of Advent. And help us, Father, to turn to you and to grow and to find help in our time of need. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.